Specialty Story, session number 132. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. And welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm excited that you are here to join me in this conversation that I have with Dr. Lendve, a pediatric urologist, not only a pediatric urologist, but the program fellowship director at the University of Washington. Now, Dr. Lendve has been out of his training for 14 years, and so his insight into this specialty will be amazing. We start the conversation by finding out when Dr. Lenve first became interested in pediatric urology. So I was actually first interested in pediatric urology when I did a rotation on it in my third year of medical school. Uh, I was on a urology rotation and part of that, I spent a couple weeks with a pediatric urology team at St. Christopher's Children's Hospital in Philadelphia when I was at Temple University Medical Center, uh, med student. Uh, and I was exposed to such a variety of patients as far as their medical and surgical needs that uh, I became quite enamored with the, the specialty. And it was really energizing to work with children. So here I was already knowing that I was at least looking towards a surgical profession uh, and urology was one of one of the two possibilities that in general surgery and within urology there was this set of patients I was working with that were exciting fun funny and um, kind of every time I came home from work that day or from my education I was energized and so I started thinking huh there's something there What traits do you think lead to someone being a good pediatric urologist? I think that the traits would include that you have a good sense of humor, that you can relate to children and get kind of um, into their mental plane, as it were, to be able to convey, you know, how you're going to care for them, why you're caring for them. And most importantly, in any pediatric specialty or area of medicine is that you are comfortable treating three people or you're comfortable treating (laughs) the patient, the primary patient, the child, plus their care providers. And that that is actually a major um, uh, branch point in medical students' decisions about how to proceed in their careers. Most medical students really enjoy working with children. What becomes a little more challenging at times is that you're not just taking care of the child, you're taking care of their care providers as well. And if you can do that, then this is really um, a great place for you. Yeah. And those, those care providers are, are much more than normal patient because they're, they're worried about their little one. That's right. Yeah. They're emotionally invested. They're, they're they're for their loved ones. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely a hard a hard one. So I'm interested 
Urology rotation in medical school, that's not a typical rotation. Is that something that you sought out or was that just something that was special at Temple? So in the, um, when you are on your general surgery rotation, which is fairly standard across all medical schools, you have an option, at least at Temple University, you have the option to take an elective within that. So basically part of the, at the time it was a 12 week rotation for general surgery. Mm. Part of that time can be spent in an area of surgery that's different than general surgery, but it could be trauma, vascular surgery, uh, ENT. Mm. And I chose urology in part because I had seen a few surgeries where urologists and general surgeons were working together. And I was really interested in the big abdominal surgeries and urology is another profession where you can have a lot of exposure, uh, in that type of area. And so I was, I tried it out to see, Interesting. Uh, furthermore, general surgeons with whom I were the, those that were mentoring me knew my interest and said, Oh, you should also look at urology because it's similar to general surgery. And you might find that those surgeries are also interesting. So that was how that, so that's how I chose that as a sub rotation within the general surgery rotation in my third year of med school. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. Just the, the amount of potential luck that got involved for you to be here at this point, right? For you to go to Temple that had the ability to do these elective rotations inside of your general surgery rotation to, to have these mentors and other physicians say, Hey, like you're interested in these types of surgeries, go check out urology. And then, uh, and then here you are all these years later. Well, and to further the serendipity play, I was actually not when I created my third year clinical rotation schedule. So you do that at towards the end of your second year of med mm-hmm. school. Um, I actually wasn't interested in surgery. Oh, I wow. was thinking I was going to be a nephrologist or a gastroenterologist. And so my choice of where I did my surgery rotation was actually driven more about just kind of getting it out of the way. And so <laughs> I wanted to do it. At, I did it at a the easy um, hospital. <laughs> yeah. Community hospital. I wasn't at the big university yep. where you needed to get the recommendation letters from the big wigs if you're going into general surgery. And what ended up happening is because of that, it was just me and a private practice general urologist, general surgeon one-on-one for eight straight weeks. So I was his first assistant, which means that I was exposed to all the cool stuff of general surgery and really none of the kind of the, the scut work that is also part of the practice. But you, um, I, I basically just got to cherry pick the, the best parts of a clinical rotation in general surgery. And so I became really inspired by what was available. Um, and maybe, you know, na- naively, I was not exposed to all aspects of surgery. Um, but that was kind of, that totally changed my path just because I actually ended up at a place where it would be considered lesser to the people who knew they were going into general surgery and needed to be at a yeah. big name program. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I'll I'll never forget. Hopefully, uh, my like one first assist in a case. I I went to a, uh, where I did my general surgery, big academic medical center where all the residents and other people are there. Uh, but it was a pediatric case, an uh, intussusception case on Christmas Eve, and so not a lot of people were in the hospital. So I got to do the first assist. So I can't imagine a whole eight weeks of doing that for you. Right. That's awesome. Right. So. Talk about some of the myths or misconceptions around pediatric urology that you're seeing and debunking on a daily basis. Yeah, so actually, I, I, I didn't really know much about pediatric urology until I had done that rotation. And if, if I were pl- wearing the hat of the med student, and I kind of saw this when I was a faculty member at the University of Washington, uh, where I am now teaching medical students in classes we basically give a couple lectures on pediatric urology. Um, and it's clear that early in medical school, at least, the thought of med students is that pediatric urology is taking care of urinary tract infections in children. Yep. Um, and so it's, first of all, that means it's a medical uh, subspecialty, which it's not. It's a surgical subspecialty. And it's really, I mean, urinary tract infections, we do manage them, but they're usually in uh, patients that we're managing their surgical disease. Um, uh, so it's, it's not, that's definitely a minority of our focus. Um, and so that was a major misconception, for, and I see that among med students, is to first kind of orient them that this is a surgical subspecialty. And actually, when I had given classes to the medical students, I lead with a robotic surgery video uh, that I performed on a baby doing reconstructive kidney surgery. And you could see from they were, you know, all the students are on their laptops surfing the web. And then all of a sudden <laughs> I have <Eyes> <laughs> all eyes on the monitor, yeah. on the screen, looking at me because they, they really, it's a, it's a very eye opening to them that this is what we're doing. And then, um, so it, it's, that's, um, that's the biggest one. Yeah. So talk about the types of patients that you're treating, obviously UTI for your surgical patients. What, what types of, yeah. of diseases, pathologies, conditions are you seeing, uh, the patients so, for? So when I have, when somebody asks, what, what does a pediatric urology do? And I, I basically lead with, well, we take care of patients from ages zero to 21 years of age, and we are dealing with children who have birth defects of the urinary tract and reproductive, reproductive tracts. And so our, what we do is we reconstruct those children. Okay. <laughs> what, what does that look like? Uh, yeah. is that, so, um, so, so the, so, the one thing that comes to mind for me is like something like hypospadias. Is that something that, that you would treat? Yeah. So we take care of hypospadias and, um, if, I, I don't know if your listeners need to know what hypospadias is, I'm happy to kind of explain it, or I can just go over some common pediatric urologic. Yeah. Let's um, go over some common ones that you're seeing. Yeah. So, um, a common one, one to 3% of people have a condition called urinary reflux where when that urine can go backwards up from the bladder to the kidneys, which is not the normal way it's supposed to go. Mm. We take care of that. And if it requires surgery to reconstruct how the ureters drain into the bladder, that's what we do. Or kidney obstruction. Children can be born with or acquire over time 
um, narrowing where the kidney drains into the ureter and it causes, um, can cause severe pain or compromise to the kidney function. And we, it's a plumbing surgery. We mm -hmm. are reconstructing or opening up that narrowing. In fact, much of the surgeries we do are plumbing surgeries because we're, we have to, the goal is to figure out how somebody can store and drain urine. And so it's basically a fluid system and we are constantly working to reconstruct those, the, the plumbing basically. Yeah. Um, we take care of kidney stones. So it's, you know, when you think of a urologist, an adult surgeon, people pretty much think, oh, they take care of the kidney stones. Well, actually kidney stones are a growing problem in children and not uncommon. Um, so we take care of all the kidney stones in children, children born with, uh, differences in sexual development or DSD conditions. So what used to be called ambiguous genitalia, um, or hermaphrodites, these are terms that are no longer used uh, children where there's discordance between their, their genetic makeup and how they're designed yep. anatomically in the reproductive tracts, that's a urology, a pediatric urologist domain to care for. And then that those, those patients are, um, approached collaboratively with endocrinologists and genetics counselors and psychiatrists, because those decisions are historically where it was quite paternalistic. The surgeon would just say, this is how we're going to assign you gender wise, because it's very difficult to do the reconstruction the other way, mm. um, uh, male, female assignment, basically. And now we know much more about how having a shared decision-making with patients and their families um, is uh, just provides such a better care for them. Yeah. So those are multidisciplinary scenarios. The other children are spina bifida patients who frequently have problems with their urinary tract as far as their bladder function. They are constantly wetting um, or leaking or vice versa. They don't empty well and they're always in urinary tension. So we do um, interventions to help get their bladder drained or keep their bladder at safe pressures so they don't put bad back pressure onto the kidneys. Mm. Um, so those are some of the areas that we manage. There are a lot of anatomic defects that happen just in the groin alone. So children who have undescended testes. It's the most common um, birth defect in males in the urinary and reproductive tract, which is a testis that doesn't make it down all the way into the scrotum. Uh, about 3% of all boys in the United States have surgery to bring their testis down into their scrotum. Oh, wow. So it's a very common surgery. Uh, we take care of pediatric hernias. So the, the groin bulges and scrotal bulges usually due to a birth defect where a child has an opening that allows contents from the abdomen to set, slide down into the scrotum or groin. We take care of that. And then, of course, all the consequences of um, circumcisions or um, that have gone awry or children whose foreskins are not um, uh, uh, behaving appropriately or mm. getting infected. And then on the, on the female side, which is also then, of course, people think, well, you're just dealing with males, but yeah. actually we, we deal with a lot of girls. Um, there are many uh, anatomic birth defects that girls are born with involving their, their vagina, their urethra. Um, and those are ones that we take care of as well, including ones where 
girls are born where they really don't have, um, they never had the insides, basically the, the uterus, the fallopian tubes, the top parts of the vagina formed. And so they, they actually don't have a vagina where when they become sexually active, when they're older, they could use. So mm-hmm. we do the reconstructions to build vaginas. Um, and that's the, <laughs> the other is the trauma side. So the injuries. So one of the most common injuries we see that get us up in the middle of the night is a little girl who's running along the pool and slides and then develops and, and creates a vaginal laceration or an injury down there that we have to fix. Mm. Um, so that, so we are, we are in the circuit of trauma care for pediatrics. Um, it sounds like for the variety junkies, urology is, is a field that they should take a look at. Absolutely. And if you're interested in, uh, oncology or cancer, I mean, there are, there, there, uh, urologic malignancies that we are taking care of Wilms tumors, rhabdomyosarcomas of the bladder and prostate and vagina. Um, these are, they're not, not common, fortunately, but there is there, if you are interested in having a, an oncology, um, leaning to your practice, you can certainly be involved. And then the other one is transplant. So kidney transplants, we are involved with many kidney transplants in children, uh, because they're usually, if the kidneys aren't right in a child, frequently it's because of a urologic problem that they had. And so we usually are working with the transplant surgeons in some of the reconstructions when they get their new kidneys, because we have to manage the portion of the, the system that gets plugged into the bladder. Um, and so that's where we're involved. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty awesome. Just the variety of, of, uh, operations and, and pathologies that you guys are seeing on yeah. a daily basis. And what does a typical week look like for you? So, uh, I, I can start high level at a pediatric urologist typical week and then mine specifically. So, um, typically a pediatric urologist will spend some time in clinic. So maybe a couple days in the clinic and then a couple days in the operating room, um, and managing some additional things on say an administrative day or doing some, uh, quality improvement initiatives with the, with the team, the nursing staff and the advanced practice providers or nurse practitioners and uh, physician assistants. Uh, that's a, it's not uncommon to have that kind of split, um, where you're seeing patients in clinic The typically you're taking care of not only surgical patients, but there are medical patients. You would take care of ones that never are going to go to surgery, such as um, you will be involved with helping children with bladder and bowel health. So uh, bedwetting is something that we work with. Um, uh, we tend to work alongside advanced practice providers in some of these non-surgical areas. Over time, it used to be that the pediatric urologist did all of that, but because of the high need, surgical needs of a lot of patients, we now have more of a shared system in many practices where some of the medical is taken care of by the APPs and we are managing some more of the surgical work. Um, in my practice, one of the things that's really been in, uh, 
engaging for me in my career is to balance my clinical with my research and education thrusts. So I am the program director for um, the Pediatric Urology Fellowship at the University of Washington and at Seattle Children's Hospital and am heavily involved with the education, the, the training curriculum for the residents, the urology residents that also rotate through um, here. And so, and specifically, I have gravitated towards technical skills training. So creating simulation modules to help train our trainees um, in things such as hypospadias, like as simple as getting some chicken breasts and getting some catheters and some fine and teaching fine suturing skills with the same suture we would use to do the urethroplasty portion of a hypospadias on a chicken breast. I mean that, so those are the things that have stimulated me. And so I spend some of my time figuring out or training and then, um, in simulation labs, as well as creating novel technologies to assess the skill of surgeons and then to accelerate learning curves. So in my typical work week, I will spend a day a week just on the education and research side of things in addition to the clinical aspects of my um, career. For the student who's listening to this and, and you've piqued their interest into pediatric urology, but they lack confidence or maybe they have uh, a, a kind of, um, oh, I can't think of the right word. They, they've shown a lack of ability for their manual dexterity. Can you teach these skills to anyone coming up and you just, you need the smarts and the, and the, the motivation and passion for this and you can teach them the rest? Most, most trainees, if given the right environment and time, can technically advance to a level that makes for a safe, proficient surgeon. Mm. I don't want to say 100%. Yeah. There are certain circumstances where it might be a little more challenging. Um, somebody who has very little spatial relations capabilities, that, that can be a little difficult in some of the procedures. But in general, the answer to your question is yes. You can just, it just takes... Uh, one one of the problems with medical training is that it's still kind of a one size fits all yeah. type uh, model. And what we're learning more and more about how people learn, and I mean, this is decades old data from in the psychology of education, uh, is that it's not one size fits all. And even in technical skills, somebody can grasp a technique faster than somebody else. Having said that, we can still bring the person who takes a little longer up to the same proficiency level. It just requires a different approach. It might require more re repetition or more re might require some more one-on-one um, -on -one time with faculty. Um, so it's, and that's the, fortunately in surgery, we, there are very rare circumstances where somebody just can't get it. Yeah. Um, it's just, we just have to tailor the curricula to the trainees. And, um, that's another thing that, um, that is, that requires objectively assessing somebody's performance, um, early. So ideally we would be kind of working with medical students, um, in certain areas. And even the, so the ones that are interested in a surgical field that we would spend some extra time developing their, their skills. 
um, so that they are kind of on a certain level playing field when they enter their residency training. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about uh, being on call and needing to come in uh, into the hospital for an emergency. What what does yeah. call look like typically and how, how regular do you have to come in at night after you've right. left and gone home? Yeah. So when I was vacillating between whether I would do general surgery or urology, there were um, some certain areas that I kind of honed in on. One was the people with whom I worked um, on my urology rotation specifically, so I don't want to generalize. The the faculty in urology were just just much more fun to be around. They were happy, cracking jokes, really had, I love the relationships they had with their patients. And it was just, it was just a culture that I personally, for me was aligned more with who I am. Um, in addition, call is not as bad. Um, at least that's how I observed as general surgery. And I don't want to knock general surgery because I have the utmost respect for what general surgeons do. I mean, if you want to be the, if the type of provider where the buck stops with you in a hospital, be a general surgeon. Because when all else fails, you call the general surgeon. Um, but that also means you are working a lot at night. And so I saw that urologists came in for certain things related to trauma, which is trauma is usually the thing that brings you in in the middle of the night. Uh, but not nearly as much as general surgery. And aside from kidney stones, which is a, that is a legitimate a surgical emergency at times, um, there aren't that many things. And when you go to pediatric urology, you can almost list on a single hand the things that will call you in. One is an obstructing kidney stone. One is a twisted testis on its blood supply that's threatening to die. Mm. The other is what we talked about, uh, uh, some type of trauma, scrotal or vaginal laceration. And the other one would be a perforation of the bladder in a child who's had previous reconstructive surgery on the bladder where a bladder perforation could be, could be a fatal injury. Um, and that's exceedingly rare. So having said that, I probably get called in for the nights that I'm on call. I probably get called into the hospital in the middle of the night, one in eight or one in 10. Okay. okay. So rare. Yeah. And then the way call works for us is that we're on call for a week at a time night that the whole week, including the weekend, and then we're off for a couple months or near a couple months. And the reason why we can take call for a week at a time is that that just tells you you're not getting called in that often. You yeah. couldn't do that if you were getting called in every night, of course. Yeah. So interesting. Okay. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Yeah, I, that question is very much dependent on how you learn to say no <laughs> through your career. Yeah. So you have to balance. So if you are in private practice, you have to balance the drive to earn a living, whatever living is that you want to live with your you know quality of life. Um, in academics, you have to balance the, the kind of drive to discover, do research, advance your academic status um, with, you know, your other, your family life. 
And so those are the things that really are competing against each other. And so it does require you to be honest with yourself about how much do you want to crush it, kill it, you know, basically ascend how fast. Um, but you do have some, you have the ability to, to, um, decide how you want to structure your life, but it does require that you say no to some things. And I would say that urology has a better work-life balance from my observations than when I was deciding on that or general surgery. And then pediatric urology in general is even a kind of a milder culture than even urology in general, because everybody you work with in a hospital here is so invested in the children, the patients that, I mean, I don't want to strip out the, the culture of an adult hospital, but a pediatric hospital is a totally different breed of culture. I mean, everybody is happier in general and always again, and energized. I think the people who go into pediatric nursing are doing it for the same reasons that I went into a pediatric surgical specialty. Mm. And in general, that means that I think we inherently value work-life balance more or put a premium on it. Um, and again, a generalization, but it's just my observation, um, that this is the case. And so I think pediatric urology as a profession allows for good work-life balance. What does the training path look like to become a pediatric urologist? Obviously after medical school. Yeah. So you, you go to a general urology residency program, which consists of usually a year and a half or a year of general surgery, um, first. Um, and that's actually whittling down over time. Um, now there's maybe nine to 12 months of general surgery rotations as an intern plus some into your second year. And then the residency of urology is a, um, five to six year endeavor in total. Um, most programs are five years. Uh, the six year programs usually have a year of research embedded within the, um, program. There are uh, just over 120 or 125 urology residencies in the United States. Um, some take two to five residents uh, a year. And I guess there are probably still a few that are one resident a year. And they are both in private practice settings as well as in, or community provider settings as well as in academic uh, big medical centers. And then you go on to doing a two year pediatric urology fellowship. Um, you start, you apply in your second to last year of residency and you interview in the spring uh, of your second to last year of residency and then you um, you find out where, where you are matched in pediatric urology by the right before the summer of your second to last year and then you so you basically spend that chief year in residency knowing that you are going to be a, a pediatric urology fellow and then it's two years. And most programs in the fellowship have um, a year that's dedicated to clinical. Uh, you are, it's one of the accredited Council of Graduate Medical Ed- Education, or ACGME, um, fellowships. It's actually the only one in urology. Mm-hmm. Um, all the other fellowships are non-ACGME accredited. And the second year is, it's a hybrid 
Some programs have, it's all research. Um, some programs, it's a hybrid of research and clinical practice. Um, and so that's what you can expect. But most programs are two years. There are a few, there are a few three-year pediatric urology fellowships, and they spend two years doing uh, basic science research in those um, non-clinical years. Interesting. For someone interested in in transplant or something like that, it's something like that. Are there further fellowships where they can go and subspecialize even more? Obviously, apparently not ACGME. Uh, accredited, but are there are there more training opportunities for those or for those uh, physicians, or do they just kind of find their niche while they're practicing? The if you were doing something as transplant, it would probably if you wanted to be the person transplanting the kidneys, you would probably do a transplant fellowship uh, in addition to your pediatric urology um, thrust. Okay, if you were wanting to say, say you were interested in oncology within pediatric urology, what you would do is most likely gravitate towards or put a premium on fellowship programs that tend to have a very strong um, leaning towards the oncology practice. And I would say that in pediatric surgery and urology, some programs that many of the tumors are taken out with the general surgeons, the pediatric general surgeons, and in other programs, it's the pediatric urologist that does them. So you would you would kind of identify programs that will give you a training in the oncology piece. Beyond that, it's it's every program is very good at giving you the kind of well-rounded experience. There are some programs that are a little heavier on recon, on big reconstruction um, surgery. Um, than others, but you're going to get an excellent training at every program that exists. The fact that it's an ACGME accredited fellowship means that the bar is already set high. And to be kind of part of that group, you have to have a fairly high standard minimum experience for the trainees. Yeah. For the osteopathic medical student listening to this, what does he or she need to do to make themselves competitive to get into a pediatric urology fellowship? Uh, just perform, go to a a, a a regular urology residency and perform mm-hmm. well, and you're you are able to do a, any pediatric urology fellowship. Cool. So there's no barrier yeah. for a, a DO. Um, to go into a pediatric urology okay. fellowship. And, I, and just to clarify, because I don't think I mentioned it, when you do at, uh, your urology residency, usually you spend a quarter of your time and sometimes even a third of your time doing pediatric urology um, rotations. So that, that's how you get a lot of exposure to pediatric urology. And many, many residencies will have you exposed as a junior resident and then again as a senior resident so that you can really understand whether this is a profession for you. Um, you, you kind of learn the, the bread and butter urology as a junior and get exposure to some of the big cases. And then as you're a senior resident, you are you know, thrust into much more big reconstruction cases. Um, and so that's, so you are not, it's not, just all adult urology. And then you kind of have to figure out, do I want to do peds? Yeah. It's that you are exposed throughout your residency in pediatrics. Good. Okay. 
for the future pediatrician listening to this, what do you need them to know to understand about what you're doing as a pediatric urologist to, to help their patients maybe see you sooner? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the one of the things that we try to convey to pediatricians is that we we are open to kind of any anytime there's a question of um, some um, what seems like a pediatric urologic issue, always open to you know ha- having pediatricians reach out to us. And at Seattle Children's, we do create um, some educational tools for pediatricians to help manage some of the more common non-surgical um, issues that come up as far as bowel and bladder health, uh, which tends to be a big one and, and can be really challenging for pediatricians because it takes a little more time uh, to work with the families to um, figure out why a child may be soiling or wetting beyond a particular age when the family or beyond the time the family thinks that, you know, they should be dry. Um, and so it's, it's, it's that it's also that, um, when in doubt with a surgical issue, just refer them to us to at least to lay our hands on the child, um, and to kind of talk to the families, uh, up front. And if it turns out that, you know, all is okay, then we kind of have the, the families back with their pediatricians. Um, but there, there, there are definitely things where they, you know, the pediatrician cannot follow through the whole life cycle of care with the child because they have a surgical issue. So we, we're here for the pediatricians. Um, and it's, it's challenging for pediatricians. There are a number of patients that we see that are complex and, you know, just walking into your pediatrician with symptoms of urinary tract infection, uh, it's not that straightforward. And so, um, we definitely are open to wanting to the pediatricians to kind of partner with us in the care of these children. What other specialists do you work the closest with? So the, we work very closely with the pediatric nephrologist, um, as you can imagine, so children who have anatomic abnormalities of the urinary tract, a lot of times it's in combination with, uh, say, poor development of the actual working units of a kidney. Um, and so, or the bladder is so unhealthy that it creates problems for the kidney, which then creates things such as kidney insufficiency or kidney failure and chronic kidney diseases. Um, so we are working very closely with the nephrologists, also in the stone management. So kidney stones um, you know, very much driven by some metabolic issues in children, more so than in adults. In adults, um, it, you know, the most common is just dehydration. In children, it's dehydration plus there's something that's driving them that puts them at a higher risk. Children otherwise shouldn't make kidney stones, but they are sometimes it's inherited from their families. So we work with nephrologists to help tailor the dietary and medical management of kidney stones. Um, we work closely with general surgeons because again, a lot of the birth defects that we take care of in the urinary tract are typically aligned with birth defects in the intestinal tract. And so, um, we work hand in hand with general surgeons and on cases like we'll, we'll co-operate on children. Um, 
another group we work closely with, uh, like I was mentioning, with the multidisciplinary uh, teams that we have. So children who have uh, differences of sexual development, we work with the endocrinologists and genetics and, and psychiatry. Um, there are adolescent gynecologists that we work with as well. Um, and then infectious disease. So some children have such complex urinary tract infection histories that um, it requires really a creative approach to how to at least minimize. Usually we can't just get rid of all their infections uh, permanently. Um, so that's another group that we work closely with. And then the neurodevelopmental doctors, the ones that are helping children with spina bifida um, make it through their childhood for all the, the challenges that children with spina bifida have, we are a part of that process. And the orthopedic surgeons are also a part of that process. So we work with them as well. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into pediatric urology? Um, yeah, this is, the, the question kind of implies that, oh, I, I, I wish I knew this because then I would approach this differently. <laughs> I would and, run away. I would never come here. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. That, Interesting. Um, I've, I've never, I've never thought about it that way. You're the first person that's, that's, uh, implied that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I can only say that I, I wish I might've had a little more exposure to pediatric urology. It's just, mm -hmm. that's not, usually can't just make a month in med school on pediatric urology. That's yeah. pretty impossible to do, um, unless you had some just complete open elective time. Um, but I would say, oh boy, I mean, I know this is like such a cop out, but it really, I don't have any, I mean, I think earlier exposure might draw in more people into pediatric urology. Um, and I think that that might've been something I wished I just had is earlier exposure to yeah. it, um, than I did. Yeah. Um, I think the, the pediatric urology really allows for an individualized career pathway, as well as like we talked about work-life balance that I think that maybe that I would say that if I want to, if I want to spin that and not the, the implication isn't something negative, but positive, then I would spin it that way, which is that the message to get out there to people to try to engage more medical students in this would be that there is a lot of latitude in how you construct your career. Um, you, like I said, you could do private practice and then even within private practice, you can choose to work as much or as little as you want. Just obviously you have to decide what's your, what's your, what is your lifestyle? What do you want your lifestyle to be? Yeah. Um, and in academics, there's so many different areas that you can research and go into even though it seems like such a small niche, like how could you possibly make, uh, you know, such a varied research career out of it? But I mean, my research is in accelerating learning curves in surgical education. I mean, that's not exactly just pediatric urology, but if you go to the right place, you get supported by your mentors and your, your chiefs and your chairs to pursue things that have applicability to pediatric urology and others, uh, fields. And so I think that, but I, you know, I created that, um, and I was given that opportunity by my bosses. And so you can choose a, a highly varied career within PGRology. It just, 
you you get a lot of skills. You get the medical skills. You get the surgical skills. Um, you you're constantly in an environment where you're trying to improve and innovate, um, discover, and thus you really can kind of create the career path you want. I think that would be the message: is that that it is even though it seems so pigeonholed and so specific, you actually can have quite a varied career path. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's the the goal of this podcast. Why I started this podcast was the majority of medical students out there aren't being exposed, number one, to urology, let alone pediatric urology. So hopefully right. a conversation with you will go, oh, this that sounds really interesting. Let me go seek it out and, and ask some more questions. Yeah. What do you like the most about being a pediatric urologist? Oh, I, I like that. Um, I, I kind of, like that I'm, uh, well, I'm working with kids. I really enjoy that my career is around fixing things. So fixing things for children so that they have 90 to 100 years ahead of them that they're going to be living with the repair. And, you know, I, I'm a, more of a plasty person than an ectomy person. So although there is cancer care in pediatric urology, it's actually a minority of the practice. Uh, unless you're some specialist, sub sub specialist, um, and I generally, I I like re- fixing and reconstructing and rebuilding things, and uh, this that pediatric urology really is kind of honed in on this particular area of surgical um, skills, and so I, I find that to be one of the most engaging things. I like that in pediatric urology, there's an ability to apply. Uh, novel technologies. So um, I'm actually, uh, my subspecialty within pediatric urology is minimally invasive surgery. So robotic surgery and laparoscopy. Um, And so, you know, pushing the limits on how we can apply tools that are generally made for adults, because it really doesn't, there's not a good um, business model for surgical device manufacturers to work on pediatric instrumentation. So it requires some creativity um, to be able to afford our patients with, you know, the same kind of advanced technology applications that we would use in adults for kids. And so um, I, that, I find that very exciting uh, to be able to apply that in my craft. What do you like the least? Um, would not be unique to pediatric urology. It's more along the lines of the the kind of realities of there's some administration to medical care that has kind of expanded over time for a provider. Um, and so that, that again, that's not a pediatric urology specific problem. I would say that for the listeners that if you want to try to pick a profession that is highly unlikely to be converted from a surgical to a medical profession over time, that is to say that Cancer doctors in general will probably go away. Cancer surgeons will go away except for the extreme cancers. And most of it will be managed with all the medical therapies Mm. that exist and are coming down the pike. Um, If you pick a reconstructive surgery profession, you are going to be um, needed for our society for the foreseeable future because you really, it's, we don't, we won't and don't have the technology to go back into the first trimester uh, embryo stage and write 
the kind of abnormalities that are in the how the anatomy is des- being designed. Um, so you you will you will be needed. Yeah. Um, Any for, last words of wisdom for the medical student or resident even listening to this, potentially thinking about pediatric urology now? I would say that don't be discouraged by the fact that it's additional training. I know that can sometimes discourage people. Um, it is not as intense of a training as the urology aspects of the residency were. Um, if you are a medical student, um, don't go into urology necessarily knowing for sure a hundred percent you're going to do pediatric urology. Keep an open mind because there may be other things that really interest you and that would be fine as well. I mean, if we can have, you know, somebody engaged in female urology and somebody engaged in uh, oncologic urology, that's those are all equally important. Um, but it's nice to have that inkling going in. And if you are somebody who loves to work with kids, then you know you may want to double down on your experience in pediatric urology when you're in your urology residency, um, because it is. If you are interested in working with kids your pediatric urology rotation is only going to reinforce that. I'm pretty certain. All right. I hope that was helpful for you. A nice inside look into pediatric urology and what pediatric urologists do. And as the program director, how Dr. Ledve evaluates applicants and much more. Something that's important now with the official change of USMLE step one going to pass fail. So if this is your first look into specialty stories. I have interviewed many other program directors. So go back and take a listen to those to get some more insight into how step one changing may or may not affect you. This week's pre-mid years episode also included a discussion about my thoughts on step one going pass fail and whether or not you should be freaking out. Hint, you should not. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories, where I talk to a pain medicine specialist. This is MedEd Media.